1: Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm welcoming Nisha Zenoff. Nisha is a California licensed marriage and family counselor, psychotherapist, grief counselor, and dance movement therapist. She's the author of The Unspeakable Loss, How Do You Live After a Child Dies, published 2017 by Decapo Lifelong Hatchet Book Group. The book was a finalist in the American Book Fest Best Book Awards. The book is the culmination of a 37-year personal journey after the death of her own son and her grief as a grief uh, work as a grief counselor. Educated at Brandeis University, the University of Utah, and Columbia University, her PhD is in transpersonal psychology. She's a presenter on grief at national conferences, is a facilitator, and chapter leader for the Compassionate Friends, the largest grief support group in the U.S. for families. She's also the author of several articles in professional journals, and she's led workshops at John F. Kennedy University, New School for Social Research, Esalen Institute, and Naropa University. Welcome, Nisha. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I'm delighted to be here. Very happy to have you, and I want to appreciate your book. I just think it's going to be, I know it just came out just a few months ago. I know it's going to be such an an incredible resource for people, um, especially in terms of kind of normalizing what parents go through when they they lose a child and um, helping them feel a little more um, of a sense of company. Yes, I,
2: I, that's what my hope and prayer is about the book, and the amazing thing, Cheryl, is the book is getting a reputation for not only being a comfort and guide for parents, grandparents, and siblings after the death of a child, but for anyone that has lost a loved one,
1: no matter how recently or how long ago. You know, I think I think that speaks to something I um, I believe about uh, the specific, also in a sense being universal. When you really dive into your own particular grief, it does relate to other grief. Uh, some is it, some is so specific, but nonetheless, um, you know, obviously I lost a spouse, but still there was so much in the book that um, was very very familiar to me. It is what connects
2: us, isn't it, Cheryl, as human beings and being alive in this world is the grief that we all share, many types of grief, from the grief of good health or losing a job or having a house burned in a fire. We
1: live with grief all the time. Absolutely. And let's let's just start by letting the listeners hear a little bit uh, about your specific um I guess I'd say, Biggest Grief or um, Profound Grief, um, which, of course, led to this book. Um, I I appreciate, led to it much later. I appreciate that because um, it does, uh, loss continues to impact us over time, doesn't it? It does indeed, Cheryl. Well, this is a book that I never wanted to write. This is a book I never
2: wanted anyone else to need to read or even for myself to need to read, and um, we were a very beautiful family of five, a very blessed and privileged family of five living in the San Francisco Bay Area when our oldest son, Victor, died suddenly and unexpectedly in a hiking accident in Yosemite in 1980. And that shattered our hearts and our family. It shattered our family. And at that time, I was already a grief therapist and a psychotherapist working with people. And I found that none of my professional experience and knowledge even made any impact on me to help my own pain and devastation. Mm. And so I reached out at that time to other experts. And who were the experts? They were the bereaved families living and surviving. And at that time, Cheryl, I didn't know if I could survive. It seemed unlikely because I couldn't believe that anyone could live a whole life with a broken heart. How do you live with a broken heart and Mm. still function? How do you take care of other children? How do you save your marriage? And I remember I was standing in my kitchen, and I just looked up at the sky, and I said, Please, God, please help me. And I made a vow, and I said, If I find out any ways that people survive the death of a child, please help me to spread this information as far wide as possible to help other broken hearts. And that's really
1: been my passion and my purpose since Victor died. You know, what's interesting to me is you weren't just a psychotherapist before he died. You were a grief counselor. What had led you to that work? Because uh, the way I... Became a grief counselor is, you know, through loss. Uh, that's what drew yes. me to it. That's what made me think there was something even uh, remotely helpful to do. Right. So, what that's had originally drawn you to to grief counseling? That's a great question. I was
2: very drawn to grief counseling. Um, because I have lost several friends, uh, one to from taking her own life by suicide, I had lost other friends from cancer, and you know, as a psychotherapist, we really were not trained about how to deal with grief in those days.
1: Oh, I agree. So, I don't uh, think it's that yeah. much better now. <laughs>
2: Right, Honestly. That, it, it, it's really not. It's a little bit better. And it was also the time when um, Elizabeth Kubler-Rosh, 1976, I think it was, was really the first pioneer in bringing death out of the closet. So people were just beginning to talk about what it's like for dying people and what it's like for those who are left behind. Mm-hmm. And I was living near Stanford University at the time, and I, was, I offered to do a grief support group for Stanford staff and faculty, and we were because I was a movement therapist. I was using movement and meditation and writing because grief doesn't just live in the brain; it lives in the whole body, and that's really what drew me to grief before Victor
1: died. It's it's very interesting because I if I think about myself. Um, Although when my wife died it was it was and was ill because she was ill for yeah. a long time, which is quite a different thing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I can see looking back the things that happened in my life, you know, some good therapy, uh, dealing with other griefs, and that sort of thing that that primed me in a way to um, tackle my grief a little bit differently. And I, I can imagine, even though you say nothing, nothing was helpful. Uh, I imagine you knew how to stick with a feeling for a couple of minutes. You know, um, things yeah. that do do kind of, in the, in the long run, start to um, impact how grief goes. Do you think exactly. so? Exactly. I do
2: think so, and also it's maybe just my nature, Cheryl. I don't know about you when your wife died, but I'm basically a researcher and I mm-hmm. love to find out about what's going on, especially in, in my own life and my own process. So I have a lot of curiosity about it, and I think I remember, um, when my children were born, I wanted to learn about birth, and I kept making notes. And it was the same uh, thing with Victor's death. It was like, I want to know what it's like to survive for all the people in this world who survived the death of a child. I mean, we always think that a child's dying is out of the order of nature. But the truth is that children are dying all the time, all over the world. And it's just very unusual for it to be out of the order of nature. So I think it was also my curiosity about life and death and how in our culture, death is so we live in such a denial of death in this, in this culture that we live in. And other cultures don't. They, you know, they celebrate death like they
1: celebrate life absolutely you know I, I this calls to mind a piece in your book that I think I'll have you share because it's a real contrast the way that your aunt who also lost a child uh, the way that she coped with it I think that um, really speaks to hopefully a growing change in in how we um, respond to loss um, w- would you share that and then we could talk about a bit it a bit Absolutely. I'd be delighted. It's in the preface of my
2: book. It starts off by saying 1950 Savannah, Georgia. I'm a 10-year-old, happy, skinny kid with a large, extended Jewish family, all living nearby. I'm visiting my Aunt Lena, my grandmother's sister. Her house is elegantly furnished with sunlight streaming in. Aunt Lena covers my cheeks with kisses and pinches that sometimes hurt. Over her fireplace." hangs an oversized color portrait of a handsome young man in a chestnut brown suit. His blue eyes stare down at me as I secretly steal glances at him. When I ask my mother, who is that man over the fireplace? My mother leans down and whispers, shh, I'll tell you when we leave. I don't want to talk about it now. On our way home, she explains in a hushed voice, that young man was Aunt Lena's 19-year-old son, Walter. He was killed in an automobile accident when returning to his army base during World War II. Aunt Lena never mentions his name or talks about him. We don't mention his name either when we're visiting because we don't want to make her more sad. We know she's sad because sometimes she goes into her bedroom, closes a door, and stays there for hours. We don't know what she does does in there, and we don't ask. Aunt Lena's daughter, Sarah, later told me that after her older brother's death, her mother never again mentioned him by name. No one in their home did. Sarah wasn't able to talk about the brother she loved and missed. And when her own son was born many years ago, many years later, she named him Walter in honor of her brother. Sadly, Aunt Lena could never bring herself to call her grandson by his name, calling him by a nickname, Billy. I recently spoke with Walter, Aunt Lena's grandson, who is now 63 years old. He remembers the heavy silence that hung over Aunt Lena's house and the oddness of being called Billy. My uncle, he said, died and we could never talk about it. My grandmother was sort of numb. She never said a mean thing, but she was always very sad, and we never saw her laugh. The whole family felt the absence of Aunt Lena's son expressed in a terrible silence and the unspoken reverberations of her grief. Walter's death in 1943 became the unspeakable loss in our family, creating a veil of secrecy, pain, and unresolved
1: grief for three generations. You know, the thing I find so fascinating about that was that everyone knew not to speak of it. Everyone agreed not to speak of him. And yet his picture, his portrait, was right there. And exactly. so, of course, she had to have been thinking about him every time she passed the picture. Uh, you know, um, It's an interesting, because I know some people um, with that kind of view of loss hide everything. Um, But she kept a a huge picture out. Oh, it's time for our first break, listeners. You can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, etc. And to find Nisha Zenoff and her book, go to com. Be back soon.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
3: Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship and anxiety expert, Sandra Reish, In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
3: There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated. With your host, Kristen Harper.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Nisha Zenoff about her book, The Unspeakable Loss. It it compiles the wisdom she's gained in the 37 years since her son Victor died. And before the break, um, well, before I lost you for a moment and then we took a break, um, we were talking about the picture above your aunt's um, mantle Uh, And and I was commenting that it's so interesting that no one was supposed to talk about him, but there he was, um, looking over the whole whole room, um, very visually present. Um, What do you make of that? Well, it was, uh, first of all, um,
2: you know, in those days, we didn't know as much as we know now about how to help people with grief. And so I think Aunt Lena really grieved alone, and that was her way to keep her connection with her son because she wasn't going to mention his name. So he was there looking over everybody all the time. And when you asked me the earlier question about, was there anything that happened in my life that drew me towards grief before Victor died, now as I read that passage, I just remembered that as a child, that was my first experience knowing that children can die, was when mm. I asked my mother, who is that in the portrait that nobody talks about? And yes. so immediately I was learned that talking about the death of a child is not okay. It's taboo. And, in, in
1: and I, can, I know this is only my imagination, um, although I, I have encountered situations like this where the family doesn't bring it up because they're protecting the griever, and the griever doesn't bring it up because they're protecting the family. And meantime, yeah. inside, people would po- quite possibly prefer to talk about it. You know, your mother wasn't right. saying, uh, I I don't want to talk about that. You know, she was saying, we, we have to protect her. Uh, so it's an interesting that's, thing, that's isn't it? it? It is such an interesting thing, and
2: also, all these years later, now I have that portrait of my cousin Walter on my website, um, so that for the first time, my aunt, who is now, my cousin, who is now 89, and her son, who's now 63, are able to rejoice and honor Walter's life and celebrate his life, and we're talking about what an incredible young man he was, And also, that's one of the reasons I chose the title, the title for the book, The Unspeakable Loss, because people are so afraid to talk about the death of a child, as you said, both the bereaved and the non-bereaved. And I like to say, grief is not a disease. It is not a condition. It is not a contagious disease. It is a natural, normal part of life. And, t- and, and talking in and a child dying isn't contagious. And so I'm hoping to open up the conversation between the bereaved and the non-bereaved. And as you mentioned, Cheryl, when people have a child or children die, they often love to talk about them. And I always suggest that you mention as a friend or family member, you say, is it okay to bring up Victor's name right now because I have a memory that I want to share with you? And then you follow the feedback. From the parents or grandparents or siblings, and if they say, "No, it's too painful right now, then you go on to another subject. But if they say, "Oh, please tell me that's such a gift to me. Tell me what you remember about my child.
1: That is such a treasure. Yeah, something I say a lot is don't don't make don't make your your loved ones deader than they need to be. Exactly. Uh, you know because there's so much that's still alive uh exactly. regardless of someone's body uh, dying, of course, you know, you and I both immerse ourselves um, pretty much in uh, there's there's no way to do what I do and probably what you do without daily thinking about um, the person I lost, the person that led to my own transformation, which I welcome. Um, yeah, but I know not everyone feels that way. And what was her name, Cheryl? Joanne. Joanne. I just love to know her name and to speak
2: her name is so important. Yeah. And, I, um, and to honor her, her life and her preciousness and her love. And I say grief is about getting used to not having the physical presence of the one you love around. But we have the loving memories and the, and the dreams and so much of the
1: person is still available to have and to be in relationship with. Well, and I would e- even say that um, there's an evolution. You know, she died in 1995, mm-hmm. um, so that's a pretty long time now. Uh, <laughs> you know, but um, and I would say that that relationship continues to evolve. It's not a static, mm-hmm. uh, not a static thing. So you're you're changing the legacy of your family as well as influencing other people by speaking it. And um, in that regard, maybe you could share uh, the section of your book book just to say I appreciated that you would at the beginning of each chapter kind of tell your own story about the subject of that chapter and then quote people. In these little sections, uh, I, I appreciated that because uh, it gave a lot of lot of different narrative to what you were talking about. But could you read the the section called "Am I Going Crazy?" Because, of course, that's such a primary question, isn't it? Yes, it is,
2: and I would be delighted to. I, I want to just mention that the book format is in question and answer format, and it's structured so that people can read little. Uh, uh, sections that their brains can ha- can handle. We don't want to have bereaved people get even more overwhelmed with with all the stories of other people. So these are really um, organized in a way that they are available to people when the brain is not available when someone is grieving and they have what we call brain fog or grief brain. So here's the section. Know it well. Yes, (laughs) me too. Okay, so the title is, um, Am I Going Crazy? And there's a quote by a father named Richard, age 58, whose 19-year-old son, Eric, had died of an accidental overdose two months earlier. And Richard says, I don't like talking about it with anyone. It's the toughest thing. I start crying for no reason, I'm not myself, I can't think clearly, I feel nuts, like I'm losing my mind. And then I write in the book, after a child dies, when you're devastated by pain and grief, you may feel in danger of losing your sanity. The ground has shifted and the world as it used to be is gone. Expressions of grief may look or feel crazy to the person going through them and may be difficult for others to witness. The day after Victor died, I sat on the floor of his closet, watching his clothes against my body, rocking and sobbing for a long time. I needed to smell his clothes to hold him close. I would have gone crazy if I hadn't done that. My then-husband, concerned about my sanity, called our friend Alan, a psychiatrist, who told him that my behavior was not crazy. Rather, it was a normal response to a terrible shock and that he didn't need to calm me down. I should be left to grieve in my own way. It was not a time to be calm. That
1: would have been crazy. Of course, in my office, probably in yours too, I, um I, have to repeat that many 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 times because what we consider sanity as a culture is pretty much a a a lack of negative emotion wouldn't you say so anytime we're horribly upset we're we're kind of thinking we're crazy and yet that's that's the way our bodies have of dealing with um uh, I I spent a grief weekend with Melodoma Somme a long time ago, oh, yeah. right after my wife died. And he was talking about how his elders in Africa, um, he described how people grieve here. And mm-hmm. they said, why would such an intelligent people give up their grief that way? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was expected that everyone would wail and moan and um, prostrate themselves and uh purge themselves in a way, um, and yeah. we are quite we're still quite far from that, I think by and large yes we I think we are very far away from that, and
2: um, there's so much shame and stigma around grief and death and helping to not pathologize it, but normalize it as just a healthy, normal part of grief. Even though grief is so scary sometimes because so unfamiliar to us. And um, I have, you know, bereaved parents saying, oh, I um, fell apart today. And I said, well, you didn't fall apart. You're falling together, number one. And (laughs) number two, your child just died two weeks ago. Why wouldn't you be weeping and sobbing? So,
1: um It it only makes sense.
2: We've got a lot to learn. And then what you and I were talking about just a couple of minutes ago around saying their name. And um, I've heard the uh, saying that if you don't speak your beloved one's name, you're actually killing them and losing them twice.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw the kids' movie Coco. No, Um, I haven't seen it yet. It's quite... Every grief counselor probably could appreciate it, Um, but Mm -hmm. uh, uh, one of the premises of of Dia de los Muertos, which is what it's about, is that if you do not remember, uh, if you do not put a picture out, if you do not speak of the dead, then they actually do literally die in the other world. Yeah. Um yes. And you know, there's it's kind of our responsibility in a sense to to um continue uh remembering them and talking about them and I like so, I like Cheryl, that idea I, very I, much. I know as
2: you and I know um years ago Freud used to teach us in therapy grief therapy that you have to detach from your loved one to go on with your life, right? And we used to um, have to say goodbye, say goodbye. I remember a therapist once threw a pillow at me and said, yeah, closure, exactly. The therapist threw a pillow at me in my lap and he said, say goodbye to your son. (laughs) Well, I grabbed that pillow and I said, don't you ever say that to a bereaved family member ever again. And I'm not going to say goodbye to my son. I'm going to say hello to him every morning and every night. And then as you know and as I know, there's something now called continuing bonds, ongoing bonds, that the way to continue with your life moving forward and integrating the loss of your loved one is to have continuing bonds, to keep, like what we're saying, keep their name spoken, keep their pictures, their memories, in whatever way nurtures your heart. I love the continuing bonds. Uh, it's a new
1: understanding of grief. Absolutely. Yeah, I, of course, nearly everyone I interview on this program has that because mm-hmm. there's there's no way you can do something that's so connected to the the loss of of a person and not feel not feel them, I think yeah, uh, exactly. it, it really favors continuing to um, realize them as a part of your life, and I think that's what we're both talking about so so now exactly. we kind of come to how how um, even if the grieving person, incorporates that as a new view of what they're going through other people don't know how to handle it too well would you read the bit about how to help someone that's grieving because um i'm sure there may be people who are listening because they have a friend who has lost a child yes of course i I would be delighted
2: to read this is This is from Bubba, someone I interviewed in my book, whose 34-year-old daughter had died suddenly. And Bubba said to me, so you're writing a book? I hope you'll put something in there about things not to say. I had to chuckle because I had compiled precisely such a list based on my own experience, and I know many other bereaved parents have done the same. Bubba said, people have no idea what to say to someone who is grieving so deeply because they're afraid. They're afraid themselves. It's just the fact they call and say, you know, they call and say they care. And that, to me, is so important that they call. They don't know what to say if they have never been in this situation, especially the ones who have no idea. They have no idea how bad you're hurting. So Bubba's voice trailed off, and then he said, There were seven things I wrote down at one time about what you should say or not say. He promised to email them to me. And a few days later, his list showed up on my computer. And here are Bubba's suggestions for what not to say. And you probably know them yourself. And I'm sure your listeners are already thinking of these things in their own mind. (laughs) So one of them is, they are in a better place. I would just kill myself. You'll get over it. If my child died, I would die myself. Try not to think about it. I know how you must feel. You have
1: other children, don't you? So, and and (laughs) lest anyone have the fortunate circumstance of never having heard those types of things, um, that is yes. Most most bereaved people have heard at least a few of those. Exactly. And, 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 often, and often at the memorial or funeral. Exactly.
2: Oh, my <laughs> God. And they feel so hurt by it. But I try to explain that the people who are saying that are trying to say, I wish there was something I could do to take away your pain. Or if, if they could come out and say that literally, which is also very, very kind and compassionate. Or to say, I have no words. Or I have, can't imagine being in your place. But hugging someone... And hugging someone, if you have permission to touch them and hug them, or just being a listener and being present without any advice, criticism, judgment is the most healing thing we can do for people who are grieving. And showing up and giving them an opportunity to say, you know, I just need space. I'll call you when I feel better. Or um, I always suggest that my friends who are bereaved say, I hope you'll understand, but right now I need space to be with myself and with my feelings, and I'm not always going to be a friend that's not available. One day again
1: I'll be available
2: again as a friend.
1: Well, there's also just, um, going back just a minute, um, it, it feels to me as if to show up in the way you're describing the person showing up has to be willing to hurt themselves Yeah, and and not run away from how painful it is to not be able to um, improve how someone's feeling. It's painful. It's painful um, not to feel but it. change it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Time for our second break. Uh, listeners, you can find me at weatheringgrief dot com, my website, or at the Good Grief Host page, and you can find Nisha Zenoff and her book by going to theunspeakableloss dot com. Back after the break.
0: become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america have you heard of
3: nutritional balancing your body's biochemistry affects the mental physical and emotional aspects of your life many of the diseases we face are related to an imbalance of the mind body and spirit Find out how to get everything back in line when you tune in to Healing Treasures of Wisdom with host Daniel Solomon. Learn how to heal yourself and your family every week. Listen Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
2: Day at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific
3: Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: I've been talking with Nisha Zenoff about her book, The Unspeakable Loss, and I just wanted to mention, even before we go on, that it's available, uh, it just came out a couple of months ago, it's uh, available everywhere books are sold, and we were just talking during the break, uh, Nisha, that you you um, narrated an audible version, and it I I couldn't believe it. it had never occurred to me how great that would be for people that are grieving. I I personally could only read memoir uh, when, mm-hmm. yeah. when my wife died, and and that in uh, I either you know speed read an entire one or read a page at a time. You know, it was very unpredictable. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I would have would have really um, um, loved being read to. You know, it's like being read to. My brain couldn't read for a couple of months. It's so
2: individual, Cheryl. Some people gobble up everything they can possibly read, and other people can't read at all. So that's why I narrated the audio, and it's a very intimate way to listen to the book.
1: Um, What I'd like to move towards is talking about, um, I've become very, very uh, interested because I, because, like you, I'm curious about my own experiences. <laughs> you know, if I'm yeah. having an experience, I become curious about other people having that experience. With uh, lifelong uh, grief, and I did, I did appreciate in your book that uh, there was a sense of of time in it that um, mm-hmm. y- you spoke a little more than many authors do about um, impact way, way after the person has died. And, um, you know, we've touched on that a few times this hour, um, kind of uh, how it is now versus how it was uh, then. Um, Mm -hmm. And in that regard, I really love the part of your book about uh, what happened uh, at your son's memorial bench uh, mm-hmm. Let's let's start this segment with that uh, as a way of, of kind of, because that happened quite a lot after and just was so moving. Sure,
2: I'd be delighted to share that. And I just want to say that when I was writing my book, which I started a few years after Victor died, and then I put it in storage where it stayed for 15 years until I had a dream three years ago that said, take the book out of storage and get it published now is the time. So it has had a long time to percolate. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, this is on page 154, and um, it starts in the middle of the section, so I'll just read. I called into my answer machine and heard a message from a stranger. His deep voice said, please give me a call. It's about your son, Victor. I thought I must have heard the message incorrectly. I dialed my number again. The same message repeated. My body began to shake. I knew Victor was dead. That was reality. Yet for a moment, my imagination took over and I had the ultimate forbidden thought. Maybe, just maybe Victor is really alive after all. No, no, that's impossible. I saw the photograph of Victor's body in that horrible blue body bag up in Yosemite. I know that was my son. I didn't mention anything to anyone. I slept restlessly. The next morning, when the house was empty and quiet, I dialed the number. This is Misha Zenoff. Are you the person that called about my son, Victor? I was nervous, trembling. Yes, the man's voice sounded the same as on my machine. Well, what do you want, I asked impatiently. You're the Zenoff whose son Victor died and you put a bench up on Windy Hill in his memory, right? Yes. Well, one day, a few weeks ago, when I was close to the end of my line, I went hiking up to Windy Hill. I had recently gone through a difficult divorce and life didn't seem much worth living anymore. So I went to Windy Hill to decide how I was going to end my life. I always walk past that bench, he said. But this time, as I walked past it, I suddenly heard a voice. No, it was more like I felt a strong force coming from that bench into my back. I couldn't walk away. It pulled me back. It wouldn't take no for an answer. Then out of that strong force came the most amazing, incredible, all-loving presence. I know it was your son, Victor. He was a huge presence, larger than anything I had ever experienced. All light and all love. He spoke to me and said, It is all about love. You never have to worry. Love is all there is. Then he told me to find his mother to find you and tell you that he knows you love him and that you are love, that he loves you and that you are never alone, never. There is nothing, absolutely nothing to ever fear. It is all okay, and it is all about the everlasting all-presence of love, the all-presence of love that can never be destroyed. Then, he said, the force vanished as quickly as it appeared, but something changed in me in that moment. I continued walking past the bench this time all the way to the end of the path. I knew I would live my life. That bench, your son, that presence gave me my life back, and I want to thank you. Then he was quiet. I was in shock and wondered
1: what I had just heard. I quietly thanked him for calling. That's, that's just such an incredible experience to have. That was quite a long time after your son died, yes? It was in, it was in 1993, 13 years
2: after Victor died. That, and that, I actually, in, I actually ended up meeting him, Cheryl. I was doing a workshop in San Francisco on Death and Dying, and I asked if we could ever meet. And he came, and we shook hands.
1: To have that kind of impact, you know, and there's and there's two parts of it. There's what happened with him at the bench. That's that's the huge thing. But there's also his compelling um, drive to find you. Well, he did. He said he had had tried to find me for months and months and months. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. How did he even find you, do you know? I don't know. I
2: know he was, I guess, I have no idea. I have no idea. He said he was calling everywhere, looking all over, and... um, he saw my name on a workshop that I was giving, and that's incredible. how he found me. That's it incredible. Is pretty,
1: it's, it is amazing, incredible, absolutely. Uh, one thing I was aware of towards the end of your book is just uh, I was remembering all of the experiences I, I've had that relate to Joanne that uh, are pretty unexplainable. That's mm-hmm. a sort of unexplainable <laughs> you know you you can't use your usual uh, or I can't use my usual um uh, linear thinking to understand a thing like that. I just have to allow for mystery.
2: Yes, I think people a friend of mine um, who's a very linear thinker says, "I love the part about the bench. it's so otherworldly. <laughs> 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 Indeed. <It's> so <laughs> 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 I know. And then uh, I wanted to just mention that in the appendix in the back of the book, and it's also on a PDF in the um record audio version, there's a whole section for family and friends wondering what to do and say, and I love that section because our friends and family are really our lifeline during the times when we can't support ourselves because we're so deep into grief, and the friends and families don't really know what to do and how to do it, and they really would like to learn, so in the book, we put some
1: helpful hints on what to do and say. Well, and, and until we have um you know grief training from preschool on, uh everyone needs to learn that because you know in essence we uh we're all going to experience that in our with ourselves and with with friends and I notice my own children are um the ones who tend to call pretty quickly when someone uh, has a loss. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, no big deal. They just call and say, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm thinking about you. You know, simple things, but they're not mm-hmm. intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right. It's become more part of their life, which is how it should it's be. their experience. They know what they what they valued also um, exactly well I've been very
2: blessed because my daughter and my son have included their brother Victor in raising their children and the other day I was talking to one of my 10 grandchildren who's five and a half and I was saying so who are your uncles um, Ruby and, uh, and who are your aunts and she says Auntie Faye and Uncle Victor the one who died <laughs>
1: It's just that simple, isn't it? It <laughs> um, is. It is. <laughs> I have a couple myself. They're four and six and um Aww. my mother my mother died and they um they have an ongoing like when my daughter makes an apple pie, they talk about her. When she takes yes. out the Christmas decorations that she got from my mom when she died, they talk about her. Oh, look, it's Gigi Ma's whatever. Um, yes, uh, yes. I just It's like water in the desert, you know, to hear mm-hmm. little kids yeah, exactly. so conversant. And it's so individual. That's why I really suggest and, and
2: um, really support people to find out What means the most to them and what nurtures their heart and their love for their person who's died? like if they are invited to a Thanksgiving dinner or, or a Hanukkah or a Christmas celebration or New Year's or birthday or Mother's Day, to go inside themselves, take some time to think, how do I want to honor this person that I love so much? Bring a candle, bring a memory, bring a picture, and open the conversation for others and surround yourself with people who can honor your love and your relationship with your
1: yeah. with your person, I- Mrs. Dyer. Absolutely. I know you mentioned in, in your book, uh, Alison Gilbert's book, Past and Present, she has some great yes. ideas about how to honor how to honor yes, folks. Yes, she does. For sure. Yes, she does. She does a good job with that. So we're, we're running out of time. Um, I hope people will go, you know, find your book and either listen to it or read it. And um, just thank you so much for being, being here with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for helping people know about
2: The Unspeakable Loss. How do you live after a child dies? I so
1: appreciate the wonderful work you're doing in the world. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. And, and listeners, go. you can find the book at TheUnspeakableLoss.com uh, and, of course, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all of the booksellers uh, that we we all frequent Uh, Next week, I'll have Daniel Riz to talk about how his near-death experience changed the course of his life and led him to use his talent as a filmmaker to make legacy films for other people. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.